and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a good afternoon in London to Henry Hall, who's been a regular、uh, on our show for the past couple of years. Henry, if you're not familiar with that name, he is the editor in chief of China Africa News, and you can find that at ChinaAfricanews.com.、Uh, for many years, he's had a fantastic newsletter, which will sadly be retiring sometime later this year.、Uh, but also, Henry, in his free time, is also a consultant、uh, on natural resource issues and natural resource extraction in Africa, and so we are just. Thrilled to have you back on the show again, Henry. Welcome. Pleasure to be back again. Thank you. Well, we're going to get Henry and Cobus's perspective today on、uh, a very provocative、uh, editorial or a column, actually, that came out.、Uh, I first saw it on Business Day, but it was really this is the Nigerian newspaper, but it was all over the web、uh, by Simplice、uh, Osongo, who is、uh, the lead economist in the research department of the African Governance and Development Institute in Yaounde, Cameroon. Uh, and it was really a very provocative article because, in part, so much of the coverage of the China in Africa is very, very partisan. That is, people get to see what they want in this relationship.、Uh, Professor Deborah Browdingham has this great kind of saying about that. You know, China and Africa is like the blind man and the elephant. And the blind man, as he's filling the the, the rear of the elephant, says, "This is a huge animal." And then the blind man, when he feels the trunk of the elephant, says, "No, this is a very long and thin and fine era." Animal, and so the point is that you get to see into the China-Africa relationship whatever you want. And what、uh, Simplice Songo he came out with, what I thought was a very well balanced take on it.、Uh, Kobus, let's start with you on this. And when you know the article is China a friend or fo- is China a friend of Africa? And you just have to do a search for that on Google, and you'll see all the different websites that pick this thing up.、Uh, what was your take on 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 his perspective on it? And were you as surprised pleasantly as I was by the by how well balanced it was? Yes, no, I was, I was also so you know pleasantly surprised, and I also felt kind of validated because a lot of the stuff that he was that the points he was making we've been making for a while, you know. So、um, you know a lot of the a lot of the cliches about China Africa, you know, issues like for example that、uh, you know the Chinese tend to bring in lots of Chinese labor, all of these different perceptions he. Kind of lined them all up and then knocked them all down,、um, you know, and, and complicated each of them in in really interesting ways. And I thought this was really a valuable contribution. It was. And let me just before we get to Henry, let me just kind of read an example of the nuance that Kobus is talking about. He said, you know, the first is that China's trade and aid strategy targets only states with abundant natural resources and weak and thus easily influenced governments. This assertion does not withstand scrutiny. China supports almost all sub-Saharan African states, except those that do not accept China's one-child policy and continue, for example, to recognize Taiwan as an independent country. Indeed, China is no more interested in the continent's natural resources than are firms from any developed country.、Uh, another widespread claim he writes is that Chinese companies prefer to employ their own nationals. Rather than locals, this, of course, is the most pressing and sensitive topic.、Uh, he continues on by saying, "This is a serious accusation, given that、uh, one of the big attractions of foreign direct investment is local job creation. But Chinese firms say that few local workers have the necessary skills. If they do, African governments can dictate some employment terms, including the proportion of local recruits on a project, as the Democratic Republic of Congo 
and Angola have done. So here we are from one of uh, Africa's up-and-coming leading economists, Henry. Uh, this is uh, Simplice's recognized as one of the 40 under 40 economists, that he's under 40 years old and one of the top 40 economists on the continent. So it's not from a Chinese point of view, but really saying that the relationship is more complicated than the narratives we hear either out of China's critics in the West or, in fact, out of China's promoters in Beijing. But it is a very nuanced narrative. Uh, give me your take on, 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 on his point of view. Absolutely. I, I think it's always refreshing to, to start reading an article that doesn't mention dragons anywhere. I, I think that's always quite a good spell. <laughs> you, can, you can blame Braudigam for that one, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the worst is whenever when someone quotes Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's like, just stop with that already. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah, so I, I, I often do a control F and look for a dragon in an article so I know how seriously to take it before I start. Um, but it's, it's great in, in showing China as, as just another actor, essentially. It has its, it has its positives and it has its negatives like any other, but packaging up China's involvement in Africa as, as a sort of mysterious and, um, and, and dangerous um, idea is, is, is oversimplifying an incredibly complicated relationship that spans centuries and sectors and areas of social and, and commercial interest. So, I, yeah, I think this is, this is a great article in, in unpacking some of those issues and getting to the bottom of what is essentially a, a complicated and, and sometimes positive, sometimes negative relationship. You know, Cobus, it, it struck me this week when this article came out uh, you know, it's in the midst, of course, of so much discussion right now over, you know, China's policies with regard to ivory, uh, rhino horn. Uh, and, you know, there was also what's happening in Tanzania right now in terms of the crackdown against ivory, uh, which has suffered a setback and the government has, uh, under accusations of human rights abuses, has, has pulled back on its enforcement mechanisms. Uh, we've seen the arrests of a number of different Chinese in this. And then on, on our Facebook page in particular, uh, you had, you know, but I would say, yeah, almost always, um, you know, Westerners who just come in so just, you know, acidic towards China, and they put everything through the filter of this ivory issue. And what was so interesting for me in the context of that was to read this and to kind of say, well, again, this relationship is far more complicated. And what I found was interesting with the China critics was when you go back to them with the type of nuance that Asongo is bringing up, uh, they don't have an answer. And, and it comes back to this emotional argument of, well, you know, whatever they're doing is bad for the environment, whatever they're doing is bad for labor, whatever they're doing is just neocolonial, and, and people react on this emotional gut kind of feeling. And that's what's frustrating for me, that we don't have more discussion that's like this. Uh, but when, when you confront those same types of narratives, Kobus, uh, what, how, is the, how do you kind of challenge them in relation to what I've been talking about? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, I think what, what's frequently, what, what's very frustrating for me is that there seems to be a need frequently among certain Western commentators to, to keep Africa and China in certain kind of symbolic boxes, you know, so they don't, they, there's a, there's a resistance to unpacking what Africa and what China really, what really, what they really are and what contemporary life there is. And they, you know, kind of, and they want to be, there's a certain kind of need to make them play these very broad symbolic roles. And in the case of Africa, one of these roles is this kind of untouched nature paradise. Um, you know, or, or like a kind of a, 
you know, kind of the repository, the last repository of, of, you know, kind of, kind of non-Western wisdom, for example. Um, you know, and I find that incredibly frustrating because obviously Africa now is a, is a very, is a highly urbanized, you know, kind of place with, with, a, you know, with a lot of development issues and needs to kind of move forward and a young population that, that is increasingly kind of plugged into the world. So, you know, kind of, I, yeah, I find, I, I share your frustration with, with how narrow this kind of, this kind of discussion can become. Henry, you you work in the in the resource sector and advising clients from uh, from all sides uh, about uh, Africa's natural resource extraction and, and mineral resource extraction sector. This obviously is one area where China is extremely active, but it's also the source of a lot of the problems when it comes to China's overall narrative in Africa. In part because it plays right into some of the similar narratives that we've seen from the West and their colonial adventures in Africa, as it relates to the fact that well. The the Chinese are only there to extract natural resources. Uh, so Asungo tried to kind of challenge some of those narratives. Let me have you try and challenge some of these the, the narratives or confirm them if, if that's in fact the case. But so China is only in Africa for its natural resources. True, false? Tell me about the narrative. I think um, I think that it, it would be folly to try and claim that that Africa's natural resources weren't the the, probably the primary factor for why um, China was there. But then to the same degree, I think it'd be very difficult to, um, to claim that any other um, international business interests weren't, weren't primarily there for primary resources. Um, obviously, the, in the longer term, there's definitely a point of looking at a market um, for, for Chinese goods, uh, which has been already a very successful one. Um, and the Turn to so the point that's been excellently made by Deborah Brautigam over the years. Um, this idea of the sort of flying geese model, um, which is increasingly becoming evident in Africa, and this, this idea of the flying geese model is that as as China has developed economically, it's used satellite countries, and those have traditionally been more locally in, in Southeast Asia. So Indonesia being key countries being affected by this model, but as China's moved out of particular industry areas. Or originally this was coming from Japan, it's happened throughout East Asia, but China particularly uh, active at the moment, it's been moving the industries which are no longer um, efficient for it into less developed economies. And I think that's, that's a whole new narrative which is impossible for um, Western countries to really replicate that's specific to China and, and really does, I think, start to erode the foundations of this sort of neo-colonial argument. Well, uh, Asungo, he writes, in so far as some Chinese firms do lag behind Western standards, they are becoming increasingly sensitive to foreign criticism and are learning fast. That's, that's what, he, what he writes. You've referenced in our previous shows about the Chinese you know, and, their, and their ability to learn fast and their desire to learn uh, from Western standards and international standards. Yet at the same time, week after week on our show, Cobus and I are talking about in Chad, you know, massive, you know, environmental regulations, massive violations. Uh, we've talked about corruption with Huawei in several African countries, in, in Zambia in particular. And there are just one instance after another of Chinese behaving badly. So what I guess my question is, is that is that maybe we, you know, when we see things highlighted in the press, in part because the international media is looking for those problems, uh, you know, because it fits a broader narrative, or is Asongo maybe 
expressing wishful thinking here, thinking that the Chinese really do want to improve more than they actually do, or are they just profit driven? I suppose I think for, for me there are sort of two separate um, points here. The, the first is the the incredibly sort of evocative use of the the idea of colonialism, um, and whether that whether that's useful at all um, to bring to the argument. And then the second point is is whether there is um, damage and, and, and negative investment impact, whether those outweigh the positives. On the first, I think that usually, if you if you look within China um, and look for the same issues that that have been recorded um, in Africa with Chinese firms, you'll discover that Chinese firms operating in Africa don't operate any differently to how they operate in China. Um, which I think, and that itself, I think, takes a lot of the, the race overtones of the, the idea of colonialism, perhaps damages those slightly. And so then the question becomes... But that doesn't is, give a lot of comfort to people uh, because... Operator. But Henry, let me interrupt you there. Sorry. It does, that may not give a lot of comfort to people. You know, there's widespread reports of labor violations. You know, China's environment is the worst in the world. Ten out of top 20 most polluted rivers in the world are in China. The air in Shanghai, Beijing... Uh, you know, you have poor quality, very poor enforcement, corruption is endemic. So I, I wonder if that example gives people any comfort. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not. And, uh, but I think it, it's, it's important to distinguish um, between using between saying, is, is China a colonial power or is it just a, a bad actor? This idea of colonialism ha- carries a lot of weight with it that's 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 more than just being a bad actor. Um, yeah, I, I think, so, you know, to a certain extent, it's, it's whether it's also whether it's a bad actor or whether it's a developing country. You know, kind of because a lot, of, a lot of the problems, the labor violations, the environmental violations and so on, are also replicated by African industries within Africa. Um, you know, so, you know, to, in that extent, it, it also, you, one, one has to ask, is it a kind of a, you know, what are the implications of, of a developing country also taking on a, a worldwide investment role? And in a way, to a certain extent, one probably needs a new word for what that actor is. Right, because mm, neocolonialism is, is not a, a good word at all because it doesn't fit. But, Kobus, uh, let, let's kind of talk about the, the proverbial elephant in the room, uh, which is African governance. And Osongo doesn't really deal with this directly in his piece, but it's something that you and I have addressed repeatedly uh, on the show that it takes two to tango here. So on the one front, people kind of put all the burden and responsibility for the Chinese to behave properly. But on the other hand, if there are rules that are being violated, if there is corruption that's going on, whose responsibility is that? In Ghana, for example, the gold mining issue, whether these are violations of immigration, whether violations of environmental laws or in violations of mining laws, at the end of the day, it's up to the Ghanaian government to enforce those laws. Now, whether they can or not is a different story, but who is to blame here when, in fact, you have people behaving badly? Is it the actual perpetrator or is it the victim who should be enforcing those laws? What's your take on, on the governance side of all this, Kobus? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always get very nervous when there's when narratives emerge that that are too easy to too easy to agree with. You know, um, I think the poor little us narrative, the the Africa being acted upon by external actors narrative, that plays into too many established 
comfort zones within Africa and outside of Africa? Because obviously, outside of Africa, it plays into long-established ideas that that African leaders are incompetent and that African countries are inherently dysfunctional. And within Africa, it plays into you know into fictions that Africans aren't. Uh, you know, to put it bluntly, that Africans aren't really, you know, kind of responsible for any of these problems. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but I think I think there is such a kind of a theme in either that, that crops up in this kind of discourse. And that makes me very nervous because, you know, it, it, it just, it's, it's, uh, it's too easy. Um, and it, it also, it, it causes that Africa, that, that you never have to then speak about these incredible gulfs between African governments and the actual citizens they represent and the very, very complicated back and forth relationship between them. And I think among other reasons, because they, that relationship is very difficult to articulate. Um, and, you know, and, and there's a lot of vested interest in not articulating it. So, you know, yeah, you know, kind of, I, I, I share your problem. I, I think it's, I think it's, it, it should be interrogated much, much more aggressively. Well, another key point here is to put the broader China-Africa relationship in a context of China's global portfolio. And although, you know, Kobus, you and I spend a lot of time focusing on China-Africa, uh, for the most part, from what I understand, it still represents a, 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 a fraction of its overall foreign investments. We're talking single digits. Uh, in fact, nothing compared to the Middle East, where its major oil investments are, certainly North America, even parts of Asia. Uh, so it's growing quickly, but it's still relatively small in the, in the bigger scheme of things. So, you know, looking forward, Henry, and looking towards the future, um, you deal with this every day in your job as a consultant in the resource uh, sector. Um, you know, Asongo asks the question, is China a friend of Africa? How do you answer that question? The Chinese government, I think, acts in its own interests. And I think it's up to Africa to make the most of the opportunity that's provided by Chinese interests. But that, and that opportunity is, is huge. There's, there's massive potential that's been provided by, already by China's ever-increasing investment and interest in, in the continent. Um, and the, the governance issues there come to the fore because the question is, can can especially some of the weaker African governments make sure that they extract the maximum benefit from that relationship. Kobus, do you see a, a shift happening, as I do, um, in terms of African governance and African leaders, that even an economist like Simplice Songo, who's writing this, but we've talked about Arthur Mutambora, we've talked about even how in, you know, in Kigali and Rwanda uh, that they're, they're dealing with the Chinese is on a much tougher uh, basis. Ethiopia certainly is negotiating harder. Uh, Nigeria is trying to. Whether or not it is is a different story. But there, there seems to be in several key countries – uh, a shift that's going on saying we want a better deal from the Chinese. We want to make this a more equitable relationship so that ultimately China can be considered a friend of Africa on the terms that Henry just outlined, that it's neither friend nor foe. It's just another actor that each country has to deal with. Do you see something or am I overstating this? Well, I mean, it's certainly been a theme of this year. There's, there's certainly more and more African leaders and, you know, and economists and so on are saying it. It's difficult for me to say whether it really is, whether it's changing the way that Africa negotiates. Um, what I would guess is that, um, is that to a certain extent, the, the track record that China has had in Africa and the, the impact that it's had on, on economic growth rates in Africa have made it possible for, for African governments to imagine themselves in a different relationship 
relationship to the outside world than the one they were they were in in relationship to the to the IMF and the World Bank before for, you know from the during the 90s for example so in a way that you know maybe the fact that China has had a certain amount of success in Africa is making Chinese success in Africa more difficult because African governments now have higher expectations and they also think of themselves as, as people with something valuable to sell rather than people who are trying to you know kind of begging for for some kind of help from the outside world and I think that is just generally a very valuable thing to very very valuable shift generally in Africa so I guess all three of us agree that China's neither friend nor foe it's actually the wrong question uh, is China good for Africa that too is another difficult question because in some cases it's great uh, in other cases it's been devastating and terrible so wildlife is one I th- example I think yeah so sorry to interrupt I think one of the big issues is what is good for Africa what does that actually mean you know um, th- that that I think is, is one of the hardest questions to answer and I, it, it's it's a question that has to be answered by Africans mm-hmm. um, and you know but it's also developing. You know, kind of what does that mean? Yeah. And what does? But it's a BS question at one level too, because you know Africa is so big and varied and diverse that what may work in Zambia may not be appropriate in Tunisia, and so there's such diversity there that people have so many varying interests. So in some ways, it's again the question is flawed because is China a friend of Africa? Well, yes, no, maybe a little bit, a lot, not at all. You know, it's all of those questions wrapped up in one. So um, we're going to end the show without an answer. That's going to be our conclusion. So it is neither friend nor foe, as Henry pointed out. Uh, but it is a, a topic of discussion, and I suspect that the feedback that we're going to get to this show, Cobus, is that we're either completely right or completely wrong. Because people get to see this issue right through their own narrative and their own prism and their own perspective, which oftentimes is very, very partisan and very extreme for the most part, as we've seen on our Facebook page. Uh, that Facebook page, by the way, is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We hope that you'll come by and check it out. Uh, you can listen to the podcasts that are there. You can follow Cobus and my Twitter feeds that are there. But most importantly, you can engage in a discussion and a dialogue unlike anything anywhere else on the web or anywhere else in the world directly with other people from all over the globe who are interested in this topic. We've got some very passionate discussions going on, in particular about whether China is a friend or foe of Africa. Please share your comments that are there. And Henry, uh, at the end of every show, one of the things we like to do is kind of tilt people towards your direction of what you're doing and how they can follow you and what you're reading and what you're writing. Uh, What's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Yeah, thanks very much. um, Certainly through my website, www.chinaafricanews.com. There's a sign-up form there where I'll send any blogs or um, newsletters that I write, and also at Henry G. B. Hall on Twitter. And on Twitter, Cobus, where can people follow you? You can find me at Sardinesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me, I'm on Twitter as well, over at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, uh, tweeting the top China-Africa headlines almost every day. Both Cobus and I are updating the Facebook page uh, basically 18 hours a day, so from, from South Africa and from my vantage point here in Asia. Uh, we're tweeting, and then when we comment, you'll see our name in brackets so you know who you're talking to. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We love getting into discussions, and, and sometimes you'll agree with us, sometimes you won't, but we always, always want to have the discussion. So uh, we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.